This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. The State Board of Education is considering a new reading exam for prospective teachers. We'll have more on the potential new requirement. Plus, we learn about the legacy of a Colorado Jewish colony from the late 1800s. He's got this philanthropic project to resettle poor Jews out in the Wild West. And we hear about the racist history of sundown towns across the West. Those stories and more just ahead. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. The State Board of Education will be deciding this week whether to adopt a new, more rigorous reading exam for prospective Colorado educators seeking their teaching licenses, requiring a new exam that demands a greater knowledge of reading instruction from teaching candidates does fit into the state's ongoing push to boost reading proficiency among students, though some education officials in the state have expressed concerns that raising the bar for licensure could make it more difficult for candidates from underrepresented groups to become teachers. Ann Shimke is a reporter with Chalkbeat Colorado. She's been following the lead up to this decision, which the Board of Education will make Wednesday, and she's with us now. Hi, Ann. Thanks for having me. Before we dive into the exam that the board is looking at, can you explain to us how the teaching license process works and how tests like this fit into the overall process? New teachers or teacher candidates, I should say, before they can become classroom teachers in public school classrooms in Colorado, they have to get their teaching licenses. And in order to do that, they have to pass one or more tests that are determined by the state. So this new test that's being considered is one of those tests, and they have to achieve a passing score, which the state also sets. What can you tell us about the test? This is teaching elementary school reading test. Currently, they're elementary teaching candidates as well as special education teaching candidates do take a reading subtest. It's shorter. It's not as in-depth as this new 5205 test. And so the 5205 is really going to be more specific and adhere to state standards on how to teach reading. And so what will happen if the board approves the new exam on Wednesday? When would the requirement take effect? So there's going to be about a year grace period. So candidates will be allowed to take the 5025 and earn their licenses, or they can take the old set of tests and still meet state requirements. It'll be about a year before the Praxis 5205 is the only option. And if the board decides not to adopt it, I assume they just keep the existing reading instruction exam? That's exactly right. And so the new test, if it's adopted, that would apply to elementary education teaching candidates, early childhood education teaching candidates, and special education candidates. Currently, early childhood candidates do not have to take a test on reading. The other two majors do have to take that reading subtest that I mentioned earlier. Some officials in education have expressed concern about the potential new requirement in this particular test. Uh, what are their concerns? So there's a couple concerns. I would say one of the biggest is that there are disparities already in pass rates by race in teacher licensure exams. So for example, the Educational Testing Service, which is the company that puts out the Praxis series of tests, they have already done their own research and found that pass rates by first time black test takers are significantly lower than for white test takers. 
Colorado's tried for years to diversify the teacher workforce. And some officials are concerned that this is going to basically make the process even more difficult by adding a new test, a more rigorous test when there's disparities already. And I understand there's also concerns that it could raise the price of taking these tests, right? That's exactly right. So teacher candidates are going to pay between $126 and $146 more to take this new test. And so university officials that I talked to said, you know, that the, the existing price is already a barrier for some of our students, and they even put off getting their teaching licenses because of that cost. So adding an additional financial burden is a concern for them. Well, let's go back to the board. In your reporting on all of this, you write that there was a presentation last month to them on the potential test change, and that at least at the time, some of the board members who saw the presentation expressed uh, support for the switch. How do you think that some of these concerns will impact that decision? I would expect that they will approve this change. However, I think the issue of diversifying the teacher workforce is still an issue. There is a bill um, that was passed by the legislature this spring to create a work group to look at some of the barriers that keep teachers of color from going into the teaching profession. Um, So I think this new test won't necessarily change that conversation, but it's just one more factor that they're going to have to consider as they go through those discussions. In theory, the board can switch to another test down the line, right? Yes, that's true. So the State Board of Education can adopt tests. And it can also take away tests or change what's required. Um, And that's exactly what's happening now. And it can certainly happen again. There's one additional point, I think, that I didn't mention. If this new test is adopted, it will satisfy a requirement that's in place right now for all kindergarten through third grade teachers that they have to take a 45-hour training on reading instruction. So by taking this new Praxis 5205, new teachers will enter the field already having satisfied this requirement. All right. Ann Shimke is a senior reporter at Chalkbeat Colorado. You can find a link to her reporting on all of this at our website, KUNC.org. And thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Many communities across the Mountain West were once known as sundown towns. These are places that have policies, formal or otherwise, to force people of color to leave town by nightfall. If they don't, they could be arrested or face something much worse. And all these years later, one town in Nevada is grappling with its racist legacy. Paul Boger has more for KUNC. In Minden, Nevada, people mill about a downtown farmer's market on a warm spring evening. The town of 3000 is nestled against the eastern Sierra Nevada, and the sun is starting to dip behind the mountains. And at 6 p.m. every day, right on cue, there's this sound. The deafening siren blares across the Carson Valley. For some people here, It's a reminder of the area's racial past. When I'm working and the doors open and I hear it, it's always kind of, for me, just a moment of silence of what used to happen back in the day. That's Tracy Kaiser. 
a salon owner, mother of four, and a lifelong resident of the Carson Valley. She's also a citizen of the Washoe tribe, the native people who were first here. In 1908, Douglas County enacted an ordinance that required all Indians to leave town by 6.30 p.m. Some say that's why the siren blared at 6, to tell natives to get out. Kaiser says it's a daily reminder of the injustice her family's had to endure. You don't know how much this really affects our community. It isn't just what our ancestors went through. It's the pain and the hate that was formed to bringing that into a law. Historians estimate there were once as many as 10,000 sundown towns across the country. Most towns and counties in the Mountain West implemented their sundown ordinances around the turn of the century. But here's the thing. Town officials say the siren had no connection with the racist ordinance of the past. It was never the intent of the siren, and it was never tied to any ordinance that required sundown or town. That was J.D. Frisbee, Minden's town manager. He says the siren was always connected to the town's volunteer fire department. They set it off to go at noon and 6 every day for insurance reasons and for maintenance purposes. And it just so happened to be within a close proximity of, of the sundown or ordinance of 630 that, um, I guess, psychologically people tied the two together. Some people in town buy that. Others don't. But either way, the siren is now associated with the sundown ordinance. State lawmakers recently stepped in. They passed a measure banning the siren from sounding at 6 p.m. The law doesn't say a word about blaring the siren at any other time, meaning Minden can continue to sound the siren at noon. But that idea has the community split. Back at the farmer's market, Liz Hastings says the siren should stop altogether because it's giving the town a bad name. It doesn't evoke anything positive or unifying for the community. I, I feel like it's embarrassing. I feel like it shouldn't be happening. Others, though, want Minden to defy lawmakers, like 27-year-old Logan Peterson, who has lived here all his life. I'm sorry that the, the noise offends them, but that's not by any means what it is today. It's a tradition. Traditions, most traditions have historical backgrounds. But for Tracy Kaiser and other tribal members, if the siren went off at a different time, that would be fine. You, you need that tradition so bad, change it to five or seven, turn it off at six. Blaring the siren at six is just too close to the historical 6.30 curfew that forced natives like her out for the night. For the Mount West News Bureau, I'm Paul Boger in Minden, Nevada. That story comes to you from the Mountain West News Bureau, a regional reporting collaboration. You can find more stories at our website, KUNC.org, and you're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. U.S. oil prices rose above $70 a barrel this week, a sign that the industry is bouncing back after a bust brought on by the pandemic. It's bringing a much-needed jolt into the local economy of Weld County. Energy companies in the area shed thousands of jobs over the past year, but they're now slowly adding some back. KUNC's Matt Bloom is here with more on how that recovery is going. Matt, thanks for joining us. Good to be here. We know people are traveling again, flying and taking road trips, and that's boosting demand for oil. How is that showing up in the job numbers in Weld County? A reminder to listeners that we have tens of thousands of active oil and gas wells in Weld County, and companies have really just been running a skeleton crew over the past year. That's because oil prices have been historically low. 
But over the past few months, the demand switch has been turned back on, and suddenly the price is the highest it's been in almost three years. So a lot of companies are reversing course and starting to hire again pretty quickly. James Smith is a driver that I spoke with. He hauls oil. His income was cut in half last year during the bust, so he ended up leaving the industry for a while. But last month, he got a call that the oil field needed him again. So much activity to haul oil right now, and it's almost crazy. Um, actually, pr- prior to you calling me, I just received a call from my uh, supervisor saying, "Hey, I had to switch up your uh, dispatches. Uh, we had an oil line rupture." We're sending six trucks out to one location to bottom out every single tank they have. So people like James are seeing their incomes go back up. But when you look on a large scale in the Greeley metro area, for example, the data shows us that the industry has added back less than a third of the positions that it cut last year, which is a much slower recovery rate than other industries like restaurants and hotels, which we know are having a lot of trouble finding people to hire right now. Can you explain that disconnect? You know, why aren't we seeing a huge rebound in jobs in Colorado if the price of oil is going up? I'd say it's a two-part reason. The first being that companies aren't drilling a ton of new wells yet, which they would need to hire many workers to do out in the field. They're really just going back to the wells that have already been drilled. Second is a longer-term trend in the industry of consolidation that we've seen really ramp up over the last nine months or so. That's led to the elimination of a lot of jobs. Just this week, three of Colorado's largest drillers, Bonanza Creek Extraction Oil and Gas, and Creststone Peak Resources, announced that they're all going to be merging into one massive new oil company. I talked to Steve Diedrichs about this. He's an economist with the energy analytics company Inveris in Denver. There's much more of a call for operators to start returning value to shareholders,、um, and generally, the way to achieve that is, is generate free cash flow、um, and, and start returning that. So it it really sets itself up for kind of that、um, flat to super low growth、um, that we're we're seeing operators guide to today. Dietrich says a lot of companies, even prior to the pandemic, were not performing well for a number of reasons. So one way to cut costs is just to join forces. The energy industry at large is sort of at the beginning stages of what is going to be a pretty major transition away from fossil fuels and toward renewables. Is that at play here? And you know, I'm wondering what that means for the local economy and world. What Diedrichs and other economists have told me is that it means we're just not going to see a ton of growth in oil and weld like we saw during the past decade. There will likely be a little bit of a boom as the world continues recovering from the pandemic, but a lot of investment at the local, state, and federal level is in renewable energy projects right now. For example, Platte River Power Authority, the electricity provider for most of Fort Collins, Loveland, and Estes Park, just announced it plans to build its largest solar farm ever in Weld County, starting later this year. Which, to me, is pretty symbolic of what's happening. KUNC's economy reporter Matt Bloom. Matt, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me.
About 25 miles southeast of Salida lies the small, unincorporated town of Cotopaxi. Although the town is a bit small and sleepy today, back in the 1800s it served as a land of opportunity to a group of Jewish immigrants fleeing oppression in Eastern Europe. KUNC's Alana Schreiber dives into the legacy of Cotopaxi and discovers why details of the story are still being debated today. Cotopaxi, Colorado, spanning 183 acres with a population of about 47, this small community in the upper Arkansas River Valley has a general store, a gas station, and not much else. But nearly 140 years ago, Cotopaxi wasn't a rest stop, but a destination for 63 Russian Jewish immigrants seeking a new life in the Wild West. In 1882, following the assassination of the Tsar, and Jews were widely blamed for this encouraging kind of revolutionary anti-Tsarist sentiment in Russia, there were a lot of anti-Semitic attacks called pogroms. Adam Rovner is an associate professor of English at the University of Denver. He's researched and written about the Cotopaxi colony. And so given this kind of repression and violence, Jews start immigrating to the United States in massive numbers. In about 1880, there were only about 250,000 Jews in the United States. Dr. Jean Abrams is also a University of Denver professor. She helped to make a film about Cotopaxi a few years back. The Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society was trying to relieve some of the congestion in the big urban centers by um, sending people across the country. But in order to get across the country, these Jewish immigrants needed a sponsor. There was this gentleman by the name of Emmanuel Saltiel. He was British. He was a Sephardic Jew, so he found his way from England to the United States. He may or may not have been part of the Union Army prior to becoming part of the Confederate Army during the Civil War. He was captured, he was imprisoned, and he volunteered to serve the Union, and this freed him from prison, and that's how he made his way down to southern Colorado, where he became a part owner of this uh, zinc mine. Saltiel was able to convince the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. He asked that he had some promising land available for immigrants. And he's got this philanthropic project to resettle poor Jews out in the Wild West. But once they got to Cotopaxi, the settlers were not exactly met with the new houses and fertile land they had been promised. It was very challenging. Basically, tar paper shacks and not enough of them. There was a water shortage. Wasn't enough charcoal to cook with, wasn't enough wood to stay warm with. Most of the land was not really arable. You have soil that's rough and dry and rocky. This is not a place where you can really reap a lot of crops. But despite the challenges, the settlers still found ways to hold on to their Jewish heritage. Their religious life thrived, and I think it's really telling that before they even sent to, he asked for farm implements, they asked for a Torah scroll. They built their own rudimentary synagogue, but when they brought that Torah scroll in, it was with great joy and a great celebration. Still, they had to make money. And since the land wasn't ripe for farming, their options were limited. They were reduced to working for Saltiel in his mines. Saltiel also had this company store, and the people had no money, the immigrants, so they were indebted to the company store. They were essentially kind of like indentured servants. 
After two years of living in harrowing conditions, by June of 1884, 139 years ago this month, the Cotopaxi colony formally dissolved. The Jewish immigrants mainly resettled in Denver and other nearby cities. And as for Emanuel Saltiel, he died penniless in an unmarked grave in Wyoming. His legacy largely vilified. I believe that he had a sincere desire to help out these miserable people, these, his Jewish brethren. But on the other hand, he was probably misguided at the very least. If he wasn't an out criminal, he was certainly a little bit of a con. The story of Saltiel has kind of got a second life because of a distant relative of his, Miles Saltiel. You can call me Miles. Miles is good. Miles Saltiel. He's a former investment banker, born and raised in England, and stumbled across the story of Cotopaxi completely by coincidence. During the summer of 1970, he was on a U.S. road trip when he stopped at a diner in Walsenburg, Colorado. And one of my traveling companions said to me, hey, Miles, your name comes up in this story in the Pueblo Star Journal. And there was the story about a namesake, Emmanuel Saltiel. The road trip came to an end. I went back to Great Britain. and I asked in my family, how is this bloke related to me? In fact, the bloke was related to him, although very distantly. After some genealogical research, Miles discovered that the branches of their family tree separated in the 1700s. But when Miles returned to Colorado in the 90s to help with a film on Cotopaxi, he was bothered by his ancestors' depiction. That was a pretty uncomfortable experience for me. I mean, not only was it the Colorado winter, which is not a lot of fun, but I was drawn into the company of people who just basically regarded Emmanuel Saltiel as a bad hat. And I didn't have any real basis to challenge it. And I also felt, as I say, that there were holes in the story. It's not that Miles believed Emmanuel was some kind of hero, but he did think there wasn't enough evidence to decisively condemn him. So he confronted this Wild West problem with a Wild West solution. Oh, the bounties. That's right, bounties. Bounties for historical documents. For example, people spoke of a petition against Saltiel. Now, Saltiel himself refers to this petition, a false defaming petition, he says. I'd like to see that petition. I'd like to see what these guys were complaining about. But despite putting up bounties in 2015 for a total of $25,000, no one came forward. Nobody's got in touch with me. Nobody at all. And I think if there was something that might have been there, it should have happened by now. On the other hand, it's a few years later. Let's try again. Hey, gang, the bounties are there. As long as these documents are missing and the bounties are out, Saltiel's legacy is bound to be contested. But regardless, there is one thing that pretty much everyone can agree upon. The Cotopaxi colony was so much more than a farming failure. So I like to look at Cotopaxi ultimately as a success story. They were certainly challenged in Cotopaxi in terms of the physical circumstances and the harsh winters. But what it did do was help really hone their leadership skills and their survival skills. So most of them did indeed stay in Colorado, and many of them went on to become successful leaders. In fact, out of the 63 original settlers, only two left the state. Former colonist Ed Grimes helped establish Congregation Zara Abraham in Denver, which still exists today. 
Ira and Simon Quiet, whose father Philip survived Cotopaxi, became influential lawyers and political figures. And you might recognize the name Itzig Shames, whose descendants went on to found Shames Makovsky, one of the premier real estate developers in the state. Denver was founded in 1864 on the back of a gold rush. The Jewish community was here from the beginning of that city. There's probably not a city in the United States that from its founding had such an impact made by Jewish Americans and Jewish immigrant Americans. But a lot of people don't realize that because Colorado is not perceived as being a center for Jewish history. But it really is. And when it comes to acknowledging the true significance of the colony, even Miles agrees. There was a period when it was a bit of a stone in my shoe. I, I felt, you know, poor old Emmanuel, he wasn't getting a fair crack of a whip. If there's something I could do to help the poor old chap out, I'd like to do that. But I absolutely don't want to take away from the heroism of the colonists on that plateau. That's the pioneering story, and it's a great story. And what their descendants have made of their lives is what one hopes for out of the American dream. But if you happen to have one of the Cotopaxi historical documents, you know who to call, because you might just collect a bounty. That was KUNC's Alana Schreiber. And that's our show for today. On the next Colorado edition, we'll take a look at attempts in Colorado to incentivize certain behaviors, from vaccinations to employment. I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.